Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is David Hepworth. You're listening to The Word Podcast. One of the reasons why the Beatles story continues to fascinate us is the part played in that story by pure chance. Nowhere is this more the case than when it comes to their having George Martin as their producer. George Martin's combination of classical training and his flair for light and shade found an unlikely but perfect outlet in his work with these four completely untried boys from Liverpool. Without George Martin, none of this would have happened. Kenneth Womack is an American academic who's just produced the second of a two-volume biography of George Martin, and we've been trying to get him into Word in Your Ear to talk about it for more than a year, and I'm delighted we finally made it happen. It's an extraordinary story. Kenneth, <clears throat> fantastic story. Um, you, you were saying to somebody earlier, you, you, you said, oh, you haven't read the second one because the second one's got all the good stuff, you said. <laughs> I think the first one's absolutely fascinating. What made you decide to do it in two parts? Uh, well, this George's story is that large. Right. You know, he lives <clears throat> 90 years. Um, he has. I suppose so. <laughs> I, yes, you know, you've got to account for everything. And uh, <clears throat> masterfully, uh, he has a, a long career in his post Beatles life, as, as many of them do. Um, and uh, it's just an extraordinary amount of information. And you, you, we all know Beatle maniacs. You can't leave anything out, right. um, or you're, you're held to account. And I didn't want to be held to account. <laughs> There's always something you find out you never knew before. I was just talking to Kenneth before we started that um, that when John had his uh, car crash in Scotland in, when are we talking about? July 1969. Down in 69, he was driving a Morris Marina. You need to know that. Which is the least rock star car yeah, I've ever heard about. And I know nothing about cars at all. So let's, let's talk about George Martin. Let's talk about his background. Because he, he came from not far from where we're... Uh, where we're sitting now. 
That's right. He's from North London. Um, he actually uh, was more impoverished than even Ringo's family. Yes, um, really. <laughs> they had no running water, no electricity. They had a single gas jet that he and his sister would, uh, his sister Irene, they would sort of fight over. Uh, the so he was born in 1926. 20, and uh, his father was out of work for much of his childhood with the Depression. He was a master carpenter. And his mother did knitting to make ends meet. And, and he later, changed his accent, didn't he? I mean, he heard, not for a while. Though. Not for a while, but it, yeah. at some stage he, he heard BBC commentators and just thought, I'm going to acquire a posher accent. Well, he, he would tell many stories about how he had changed his accent. He would claim that he had hurt himself on a recording and that that had made him concerned. He also would say uh, the anecdotes about the BBC commentators. But when you isolate it, and, and George finally comes clean about this, it really occurs when he's in officer's training when he was in the fleet air arm you can see him there on the left uh looking very dapper in around 1944 and uh, in his 18th year and george uh went into officer's training and they had a lovely facility still do down in greenwich and they had these marvelous dinners every night during the during the training school and he would listen to all of these well-bred boys from well-bred families who knew which hand you know mm-hmm. had the fork and cutlery yeah. yes exactly and uh he knew he had to in his heart he wanted to be that and spent i i would argue most of the rest of his life trying to live up to this this sort of grander vision of himself which he more than fulfills so he's one of that that kind of generation of people who was changed by the opportunities that the war afforded them that's right there was a before and after that's exactly it you know you go off to war and you come back as something else he just came back as more than something yeah. else and he was hardly the only person to do yeah, this of course yeah yeah, yeah. so but he gets married quite young, doesn't he? He does. He gets married actually on his birthday uh, when he turns, I believe, 22 um, in 1948. And uh, you can see his, uh, his first wife there, Sheena. She was a, a lovely, very well-versed uh, singer. She was middle class, which attracted him, uh, believe it or not. Um, they had met when he was de- the demobilization officer up in Scotland. And, of course, everybody remembers this, right? When you're the de- demobilization officer, who's the last person you demobilize? Yourself. That's right, you. So he was there for the long haul to see the troops off and uh, fell in love with Sheena. Right, right. So they had... Two children? They had two children um, in, the, in the 1950s. Uh, Gregory uh, was, and Alexis. And then, and then he starts working for, for EMI. Well, he starts working for EMI much earlier. So they get married in 1948. He goes to the Guildhall School, right. which is made possible by the great Sidney Harrison, uh, who had his own BBC show where he would teach people how to play the piano. And he was also a professor at the Guildhall. And during the war... He did a wonderful thing for George. Um, Like many great citizens, he wanted to share in the war effort in any way that he could. And so what he did was he would carry out correspondence with any of the young troops who were interested in music. And George uh, was connected to him. And George would send him various pieces of sheet music. And Sidney would correct them and send them back. And and they went through this sort of uh, um, dysfunction for a while. And and when when George finally demobilized himself, he had no plans. And Sidney said, you should go to the guild hall. And George said, well, I, I would have to audition. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, you're in. And, of course, he was in. And, and George called him his fairy godfather. And there's a, a really interesting that, that, that our idea of what a producer did 
It's completely different, isn't it? Because producers were sort of men in white coats who actually made the music. But a, 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 a producer was really more of an A&R person, were they, at that time? They were absolutely an A&R you, you person. You signed people, you, you gave them material to record, you, you wanted it recorded certain way, you were, oversaw their artwork, the, the, you gave a title to the record. It was, all that was the, was the producer's You did job. everything. And, yeah. and George uh, would use the word sometimes supervisor. You were yeah. the supervisor of, of the artist and the choices that they would make. If you gave them any choices yeah, yeah, to yeah. make, which was not always true, you can see him there with with Peter Sellers, of course, and Bridget Bardot. Uh, goodness gracious me, uh, Sophie Loren. That's right. Yeah. Um, in any event, um, yeah, George came in with EMI. He didn't know what an EMI was in 1950 when he started. It was September. Um, he only got the interview because of Sidney Harrison. Sidney said, I know a guy, Oscar Preuss. He's head of uh, EMI's third label. George, what's an EMI? <laughs> uh, the third label was Parlophone. And Sidney, excuse me, Oscar Preuss needed an assistant. George fit the bill. The two were put together. And uh, George goes in. He rides his bike across London. Uh, he had no money. Um, he was in his last moment of having a stipend at the Guild Hall. He was wearing his Fleet Air Arm great coat, and he rode up to Abbey Road. And the first person he runs into is Judy Lockhart Smith, who, of course, is uh, Preuss's assistant at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was a job interview he could not fail. Right, uh, and he was made assistant A and R man. Now he was nearly fired several times. Uh, it, one one great anecdote involved Humphrey Littleton, uh, the trad jazz player, and uh, one of the the few money making clients that uh, that Preuss had with Parlophone. And George decided he would tell some of Hump's band how to play. And give them some advice. And Humphrey promptly stood up and stormed out, walked out of the yeah. studio, and walked down Abbey Road. And George said, "What do I do?" And, and Oscar Preuss said, "Well, if you catch him, you might keep your job." <laughs> <laughs> and the signing of the Beatles is an amazing story in your in, in your book, where, where um, he's having an, a love affair now with, with Judy, and has been for many years. And has been for many years. And his immediate boss then finds out about it, and it's all complicated because he's having a big rivalry with. Uh, Nori Paramore, who's yes, also, his arch enemy. That's right. Who we his arch enemy? Right. Yeah, and, uh, and Nori Paramore is producing Cliff Richard in the Shadows and having huge success. And George Martin desperately wants to have a, a, a pop group that he can uh, claim is uh, with some success with. Well, I love that story. Uh, anyway, have you have you seen photos of, of, of Nori Paramore? Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, he's he's not an arch enemy, <laughs> but George turns him into this kind of supervillain in his mind. You know, because he he has a place on the shore, he's got a townhouse in the city, and he's got a brand new. Jag, you know. Well, he had Cliff Richard in the shadows. Didn't well, they, he? that was the they problem. They were EMI's <laughs> big act. That's they? right. Until and until George. I want to talk about for, for a moment, about for a moment about the comedy records. You know, they Sophia Loren, Peter Sellers, the great masterpieces, Bernard Cribbins, Right Said Fred, all these kind of things. You know, well, what got him into that? What 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 led him down that path? Well, it was the simple need to do something. He needed to do something. Preuss retires in uh, 1955 and then, sadly, promptly dies. <laughs> um, he had been, been in the, the A&R seat for too long. Uh, but when he retires, he says to George, you need to do something because they have a plan to mothball the label. Right. You know, they're going to make you label head. You'll be the youngest executive in EMI history. <laughs> For as long as they'll keep you, which might not be very long. So George knew that he had to do he something. He had to find an area 
he needed he needed to find something. And uh, there's a there was a great scene at uh, Preuss's retirement party. They were in Studio One, the big studio, right? And they were having a party, and they roll out these Encyclopedia Britannicas. This was the gift from EMI to Preuss upon his retirement. And he looked at George and he said, "If you're lucky, you'll get that." Right. <laughs> Yeah. So he, he'd given George just enough horror stories that he knew that he needed to do something. And, uh, and something turned out to be comedy. He had a chance to do some live, uh, some live work beyond the fringe, other sorts of artists. He did, he did at the drop of a hat, That's Plants right. and Swan, which was a huge favorite. To That's the, right. Uh, and he, the Bernard Cribbins record. And he turned them into kinds of events, you know. Here's the record from... The live show, like but we're doing was, now. But it wasn't just that. That's what. In, what interests me is that that um, those records, like songs for swinging sellers, uh, <laughs> you know, are genuine imaginative pieces, aren't they? They're not recorded in front of an audience. No, they're, no, they're they're pure imagination, and they're they're the word. You know, it's volume two, but those are the sound pictures. And George began to imagine really the career he would have with the Beatles a decade before. His first sound picture was with Peter Ustinov. Uh, a crazy piece called Mock Mozart, where Ustinov would overdub all of these, you know, goofy voices uh, singing like Mozart might, you know. Um, and uh, for for George, this was great fun. He loved doing it. Now it didn't do anything, and at the monthly meeting that EMI would have, he was sort of laughed at by his colleagues. But he was onto something, and it always stuck in his mind. So it was a natural shift. For him. And he was experimenting with all the technology, wasn't he? What, what was he was. He was to trying do? to get as much as he could out of you know very little with twin track recording. Because when he started recording with Ustinov, I think he said something like, let's paint, which is a lovely idea that you're painting with sound, aren't you? Right, and he would liken it to working with uh, Impressionists, right? Impressionist yeah. painting, trying to create imagery in the mind. So when you listen to, especially the Sellers records. Sellers records yeah, are incredible. You know, All the Things You Are is such a great example. Uh, you know, when he has, uh, Sellers is singing it, you know, in a Cockney accent, and he's in the bathroom, and you don't realize it until you start hearing the water running. And, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and then his own urination <laughs> and then somebody's knocking on the door and, and you know this magical moment turns into low comedy very quickly and that's what they were great at they, they loved to create again these kind of sound pictures in the studio yeah, yeah. and it was a fairly new thing it you was. Know, not a lot of other folks were even no, trying to do this. No. You know, studio time, when George Martin was working in the 50s, you had 90 minutes, and that's it. You came in with your material, ready to go, and those white-coated engineers yeah. were there, and the, the clock went off. You w- recorded the material you'd rehearsed, and you got out. And then other people, like George Martin's, would make the decisions about how your work was presented, about how the world would see it and hear it. So, just... Tell us the story about how he signs the Beatles, because he doesn't intend to, does he? He does it by mistake, pretty much. Well, he really doesn't want anything to do with them. Um, he meets Brian Epstein in February 1962. Um, Brian has, Brian's act, the Beatles, have already been rejected, I believe, three times by EMI. Uh, George had missed his opportunity to reject them the previous year, although he certainly would have, too. Um, they, of course, were... Uh, turned down after their audition with DECA on January 1st, 1962. They were distraught over this, although I think we would all agree it's the best thing that ever happens to them, is being rejected by by DECA. 
Um, it turned down because they were so hungover, weren't they? Well, well they were hungover. <laughs> they were so um, drunk the night yeah, before. Yeah, and, and John Lennon, if you have a chance to read his commentary about uh, his own review of the session, he said, well, I was terrible and Paul sounded like a woman. Um, just, just hilarious kind of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking uh, about the situation. But it was the best thing for them. Um, Decca, they would have been with a much younger guy, Mike Smith, who was in his 20s. He would have adhered to the 90 minutes yeah, that I'm sure yeah. Decca had, too. And, you know, they would have recorded six sides and out. Those were the standard contracts of the day. And that is exactly what George Martin is giving him. In any event, he meets, he meets Brian, and Brian makes two mistakes within seconds. The first thing he says is, they're going to be bigger than Elvis. Well, that's absurd. It's February 1962. You can't even imagine that. It just happens that this is the one time somebody's right about that. <laughs> yeah. um, so you so you have that issue. But then secondly, he says, and they're from Liverpool. Yeah. Well, as we already know, George has spent his entire adult life trying to sound posh with a cut glass voice. Why does he want to be with this these guys? He doesn't. Forget it. He plays, uh, Brian plays him... Uh, um, like dreamers do, I believe, and, and some other cuts. And George's like, well, that's, that's fine. You know, you can bring them down if you want. Brian did not want to do that. Brian wanted a sure thing. Now, you mentioned earlier that Brian is, well, is certainly a candidate to be the fifth Beatle, correct? One of the things that made him so special is he already felt in February 1962 that he had not done anything for them yet. Think about this. He met them in November. <laughs> this is November 1961 when information does not travel in anything remotely like it does today. He in short order, gets them a, uh, an audition with Decca, one of the biggest record companies in the world. He gets them to wear the suits, as you can see here in this lovely shot. He is uh, almost immediately gets them a raise with the cavern. So he is doing things very quickly. Stops them smoking, drinking, eating, and swearing on stage. Yeah, he's, he? <laughs> they clean up their act, and this is two or three months in. So he's moving at light speed. But still, he wants to leave with the contract. Well, he goes away. And George is ready to forget about that meeting. It never happened. But a lot of uh, different tentacles of, of story and strand are in the air. Things are manipulating him from behind the scenes. Number one, George wants a raise. He uh, is earning a paltry uh, 3,000 pounds, I believe, or somewhere in that vicinity a year, uh, which, by the way, is a good salary in 1962. It's just not a good salary if you're running two households. Yeah. So this is an important safety tip. It's a good salary for, for, one, for one household. So in any event, George has that issue. He's trying to get a new deal, and he wants a deal where he can get residuals for the records he produces. Well, EMI is saying, you know, forget it. No way. Of course, what George wants is to be like Nori, his arch enemy. Earning a bit of money. And, uh, he needed the money, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, his wife does not want to give him a divorce out in the suburbs. She now knows at this point uh, that he's seeing someone else, um, which, by the way, is a, a moment in, in volume one that is, is quite funny. And uh, not if you're the person who's experiencing it at all. But George has one of these moments where um, he gets busted and it's entirely his own doing. Um, what his wife didn't know was every day when George would drive in, he'd make the long journey from Hatfield in the suburbs, of course, uh, to Abbey Road and of course at their other facility at that time. 
and he would pick up Judy, who lived very close by in Old Hatfield, very nice part of town. Very nice. She is Judy. Big difference between Old Hatfield and Hatfield. Let me yeah, very different. Yeah. Very different. And she's the woman with the double-barreled yeah. last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So George would pick her up every day and, and go into work. Well, one day, um, his wife threw a curveball, and she said, I would like to go into London with you to do some shopping. Whew. And George plays it terribly. (laughs) He says, okay. (laughs) She gets in the car, and he doesn't know what else to do (laughs) but just drive to Judy's place. So he drives to Judy's place to pick her up, and he gets out of the car, and he he sort of looks around for a moment. And and Sheena would later remember George would sort of kneel down next to the wheel well as though he was working on his shoe. because he didn't know what to do. And he was buying time, pretending to tie a shoe. He was probably wearing loafers, you know. (laughs) And at that point, he just shook his head, went and got Judy, and Sheena sort of put it all together. Immediately worked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every woman has the heart of a policeman. (laughs) And and you suggest... Michael Shaben wrote that. (laughs) And there's a suggestion that he's... They're so disapproving about the fact that he's having an affair with his secretary that almost as a punishment, he's given the Beatles to produce. (laughs) Um, Well, and and that is one way to read it. Um, L.G. Wood, Lynn Wood, who was the managing director, had also found out about the affair because George had taken Judy um, to a lecture he had given. He thought it was okay. It was a business experience. Spence, uh, and Lynn Wood had found out about it, and George said, you know, well, what's the big deal? I was taking my secretary to a, I was giving a lecture in Blackpool, and Lynn Wood said, well, you know, we're a family company here at EMI, yeah, yeah, uh, and, uh, and dressed him down, but, but, you know, the long and the short of it, and there is a lot of intrigue about why, but the long and the short of it was Brian was head of the biggest record store in the North. They were making pots of money out of NIMS, and uh, they wanted to, you know, make the rich guy from up north who has the big distributorship happy. Yeah. Happens all the time, usually in beer sales, but, you know, it happens all the time. And uh, they said, give him a contract. Well, George, at that point, didn't care. These were penny-per-record contracts, which literally means you get a penny for every record. The problem is, at this point, you had to split that penny five ways. John, Paul, George, Pete, and Brian. And if they sold a million copies, and they're not going to sell a million copies, right? No, surely not. No way. They split something like four so, or $500 five ways. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. So it's one of these contracts where the record company, and these were most of those contracts in those days, right? And probably now, um, the record company cannot lose. So they call Brian back in May of 1962. He's thinking, what are they going to reject me again? And he walks in, and there, there's Judy. And and, and George, and this contract is laid out that calls for George to produce six sides by the Beatles. That's all he has to do. Run that clock out. Make six songs, three records. They just started 45 RPM. In fact, the contract, I believe, had 78 written on it, um, but the shift was, was already in play. Six sides, over and out. And that was George's plan. Right, right. So, but obviously it turned out to be a lot more than that. Where... <laughs> What would you say was the was the the key uh, thing that made his relationship with the Beatles work in the studio, and made them produce such great records? Well, the the thing that I, I would argue uh, creates buy-in for George occurs. Um, importantly, after "Love Me Do" has been a top twenty hit, you know that's 
good cachet for George. Uh, but it, it occurs with the song Please Please Me in September 1962. By this point, Ringo is now the drummer, and they have this new song, and they play it, and George says, well, I don't like that. It's slow and dreary. You know, and, and then he says the most absurd thing, and, and even to his own recollection, it was absurd. He said, well, why didn't you rehearse it faster? And think about that. For, it's an absurd question. Well, they didn't know to, you know, they didn't know to rehearse it faster. So what they did was when they went back to Liverpool to come back for a, another session a week later at Abbey Road, they did just that. They came back. George was late to the second session, but he heard the acetates later, and he thought, they did what I said. They played it faster, and it was wonderful. And I think it was part of the, and we all like this as human beings, right? He was right. And he liked that they had rehearsed it and, and now recorded his rightness. And didn't he, I mean, does he say, actually say, I mean, this gone down in, the, in folklore, that he said, congratulations, gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one record. He does, in fact, do that. And that was Which at the... incredible thing. It is say. an incredible thing. But we owe Mark Lewison such a debt because he asked, what did they do after they said, he said that in November 1962? They rolled over laughing. They lost it. They thought it was the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. They're not going to record a number one. You can say that all you want. Uh, but George Martin, to them, was this kind of almost foreign entity. Yeah. He's 36. They think he's the oldest man in the world. Um, he has this voice that says, you know, go get me a drink. He's very tall. Very tall. And he accentuates that by sitting on a tall black stool. You can see it there. That accentuates his height even more. And he would tower over them almost like a school teacher. They would cut up behind his back and call him the Duke of Edinburgh because they had to do something. Um, and he seemed, I mean, even there, he looks like the boss. Uh, I, I had occasion recently to ask David Crosby, uh, who had visited the studio a number of times in the mid-60s, you know, what do you remember about George Martin? He said only one thing. That dude was in charge. Yeah. Imagine David Crosby saying it. Yeah. And he's in charge to the, to the point where he's changing the shape of the songs a lot of the time. And he, I think he said to them very memorably that you've got to get people's attention in the first ten seconds. When you, when you write a song, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to hold people's attention. And Absolutely. Doesn't, doesn't he say things like, I mean, Can't Buy Me Love uh, starts with the chorus, doesn't it? I'm Absolutely. Loser, the chorus. So he, he, a lot of the time it was just abridging what they'd done, so it had immediate impact. Absolutely. And what George would describe that as is head arrangement. And when yeah. he would be asked, what is the best thing you do? It must be this or that. And he'd say, no, the best thing I do is head arrangement. I can hear a song and give you an idea. You may not take it, but I, I will give you some suggestions. And that, that's his superpower. And one of the turning points, you say, is, is um, when John writes this boy and you talk about that being a moment, where a cornerstone of what could be possible, this really complicated kind of soul song with a triple harmony. Right. Sometime in, in the fall of 1962, George sees these guys probably as his life's work. He feels a connection with them. He can hear them writing songs and listening to his ideas. So you fast forward to that moment, and when they do this boy, he sees his way in. And by way in, I mean... He, he can imagine how he will have a role in this band, too. He will help them do the three-part harmony. Yeah. Finds the notes on the piano because, you know, they're not going to do it. And, and helps them build chords. And he starts to see his own place yeah. inside this band and inside their success. 
Well, amazing. One of the amazing things for me about reading the book was um, was you drawing my attention to the fact that there were instruments on songs that I didn't know were there at all. When I when I discovered that there were bongos on a hard day's night, changed my life. I had to go. go and I tweeted it actually. It said there are bongos on a hard day's night, and people were going rubbish. There can't be. And then ten minutes later, they're coming back. And going, there are. You know. Once you know it, you can't hear anything which, else. <laughs> well, but he made those Ruined kind it. of telling additions, didn't he? You know, that kind of it just increases the excitement of it, doesn't it? Absolutely. And as an educator, as a dean and a professor, you've just made my day. Oh, we, we mean to change lives. That's what we do with education. Yeah, um, yeah George had a great sense of uh, the, the flutes, right? On uh, You've got to hide your love away. Um, once they let him start doing that, um, you know, for the longest time, he was their session musician. He's the one playing the hell out of the piano on rock and roll music. You know, it's George Martin. It's uh, George Martin doing Little Rich. That's right. Yeah. And he loved it. And uh, But he he was aching to be able to help them expand their horizons. But, but also he did this thing, going back to Hard Day's Night, he does this... Um, He's a great believer in this kind of speeded-up piano, isn't he? The, the wind-up piano, he called it. The harpsichord yeah. sound. That's right. And yeah. it was an old trick he'd learned making the comedy records. Yeah. Right? You, what do you do? You want to make a voice sound funny? You speed it up. Well, they didn't have helium laying around. You know, post-war years. So what George would do, and it all came to him, as it did for so many producers after he heard the Chipmunks, uh, in ni- that, which I think is now flowing through our audience's synapses. I, I apologize. I, um, I have to interrupt you there and correct you, actually. Oh. Because Abbey Road, and I know this because I've had it demonstrated for me by an EMI professional, was the home of, of not Chipmunks, but Pinky and Perky, <laughs> who were the UK's proud competitor to the Chipmunk. Are they you, better? You is this just, like a Beatles, Rolling Stones thing? <laughs> it could be, if you want to build that up. And then basically they explained how they used to make Pinky and Perky records, which was playing everything really, really slowly. <laughs> And then speeding up. <laughs> I love it. So everybody in Abbey Road knew how to do that. Well, I'm, now I'm just thinking about I, Alvin, Simon, and Theodore and, and how they really were masters of their craft. No, no, no. no that, <laughs> it traveled over here as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's happened before. <laughs> so they, they, this, whole, this whole business of, of additional instruments fascinates me. The, tell the story of the piccolo trumpet on Penny Lane. Well, Paul sees David Mason on TV. Uh, they've play, almost made the record. They've, they? they've almost finished it, yeah. And he sees him playing the Brandenburg Concerto, I believe, or something like that. And he said, well, I want that guy. And so George did it. And, and this would happen quite frequently. Well, I saw this person on TV, or I heard this sound the other day, and George's job was to go get that sound and put it on the record. Um, they had no access or ways of, of getting into that business, you know, to the Philharmonia. And so George would do it. And these fellows would play on these records for almost nothing, for one-time payments. Now, Mason was a big wheel. He got yeah. something like 40 pounds. You know, usually it was 12. Uh, a nice one-time payment to be on a record that has sold, you know, 20 million copies, this sort of thing. I love that story, though, because Mason goes in there and plays absolutely impeccably. Oh, he brings, like, nine different trumpets with him. 
<laughs> Which one do you want? Yeah. But doesn't he, he brought a, them all? He plays a top in. note that is absolutely impossible to get, and McCartney thinks he, he can do it again, doesn't he? He says, well, let's do several more takes. And he goes, well, that's, that's kind of <laughs> it's it. It's ridiculous. I mean, George yeah. Monson said, you can't ask him to do no, that. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, collision of the kind of rock and roll skill set and the classical musician skill set, isn't it? Right, and, and George... They do would, it right first time, classical musicians. Yeah, that's why we pay him the 40 pounds. Yeah, He's yeah, the good yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Paul would uh, would sometimes push those boundaries. And, you know, George took the piss out of him a few times. There's the famous example with the vibrato uh, when Paul says, well, I don't want any vibrato. And so George, you know, tells the musicians, well, no vibrato. And and then Paul keeps going back and forth. And he finally says, Paul, I'm going to test you now. <laughs> and he has them do it and then not use vibrato. And, of course, he can't tell. <laughs> um, so uh, George would push back occasionally. Because the Beatles didn't. I get the impression reading the book, they didn't get technically more sophisticated. They got more ambitious. They're all saying, I want it to sound like so-and-so. Can't you get it to do this? But the, the, the kind of terminology they used didn't, didn't get any better. You know, they were still quite basic musicians. Is that true? Is that fair? It's fairly true. Uh, McCartney, of course, takes a great interest. Um, you know, the fellow up there uh, below Brian Epstein, though, is the secret weapon for George Martin. That's Jeff Emmerich. Yeah. And when Jeff comes on board in 1966 on a, on a more or less full-time basis as their engineer... Suddenly, George has a lot of technical firepower with him. George wasn't a techie either. He was classical. You right. Know, yeah, in fact, so George was the bridge between the Beatles and the kind of classical, conventional, stand, traditional musician skill set. Right. Whereas it's, Jeff was the bridge to the electronic side of it. Sure, and he, he helped them push those boundaries on albums like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Now, George would come at him with ideas, and then Jeff's job was to go work with Ken Townsend and others, you know, with the soldering iron to figure out how to rig it all up. Another favorite of mine is the story of, uh, of Yellow Submarine, <laughs> which I always assumed had a brass band on it. It's not as simple as that, is it? No, it's a, it's a little piece of tape that they made from a sound effects record. So when you hear what sounds like a band in the middle of Yellow Submarine, they, they'd gone to the, the, um, the Abbey Road tape library, pulled out this old tape, and George Martin said, oh, you can't just pinch it because copyright, somebody, yeah. will come, somebody will come after it. He said, cut up the tape and reassemble it. Right. Well, in this case, yeah, they, they had it double back on itself. So, you know, what is it, four seconds? So it's really two seconds of original music. It was quite clever, really, for 1966. Yeah. But it's extraordinary, the kind of improvisation that goes on all and, the way through. And George really looked at that as one of his happiest moments for recording them, didn't he? Because the amount of experimentation, they wanted to sound like they were recording underwater. And they did all sorts of... Uh, bizarre things with sound effects on that. You know, and when you listen to that record, um, and I, I recently um, <laughs> obtained a copy of just the sound effects, it's really something. Fantastic. Because it sounds, you know, it's the sound picture of being in a submarine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's what it is. Yeah. The waves sound like waves, and it sounds like people are working on the submarine. For some reason, they're hammering it, which makes me nervous. Um, I mean, I know it's steel, but <laughs> um, but yeah, it sounds, it sounds like what they want it to sound like. It is a sound picture. But even Mark was talking earlier about the you know the traditional job of a producer was recording supervisor or whatever they they took loads of decisions beyond what you would expect the producer to do. But you say that up until quite late, George Martin uh, sequenced the albums. He was the one who decided how they started, 
what went to the beginning of side two and all. Is that fair? It is. He really, uh, until even in, during Sergeant Pepper, when they're taking more control, he is still making, I guess, the management decisions on, on how the album will be tracked. Uh, even though they claim a certain amount of creative authority by then, they still instill him, with him a, a lot of decision-making capability. Even the White Album, which was hardly his most pleasant experience, he's there during the 24-hour session helping them sequence the thing. So you say the White Album was not a happy experience for him at all. He, he used to turn up with a bundle of newspapers and a bar of chocolate. It's true, yes. Uh, now, we don't want to, to misread that. It, it sounds, it is passive-aggressive, right? You're not as important as you might have been the year before when you made Sergeant Pepper, which was... Uh, by his, uh, his youngest son, his youngest son, Giles, reading his greatest moment. And I think it was, too. George was working on all cylinders with them. There was, they really could do no wrong. And when they, did no wrong, when they did do wrong, they could figure out how to rig something that would make it better. Um, with, with the White Album, he wasn't uh, consulted in the same way, so he would wait to be called on. Uh, but call on him, they did. Uh, he goes on vacation at a rather awkward time in September 1968, but he returns to the fold and does a lot of, uh, I suppose, um, salvation work, quite frankly. He takes Glass Onion, most notably, which had a terrible ending with a sort of uh, football match uh, and breaking glass kind of uh, goof that John Lennon had prepared, and he adds a st- strings instead, really brings the song out. So he did a lot of salvaging for them on that record. See, he rescued um, uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, didn't he, as well? Well, that was less of a rescue uh, than a demand. John said, I want this piece to connect to this piece, and George said, well, you can't do it. They're in different keys, and they're at different speeds. And Lennon said, no, you, you'll figure it out. Right, right. And, and, and he, he and did. Jeff Emmerich figure it out. They kept speeding up the one and slowing down the other until the times work, and it was a little off. Uh, There's a moment in, in, in the book where you talk about a, a kind of change in the kind of balance of power. The, the, the beginning... George Martin is, the, is, is, is almost the kind of teacher and they're the people and they're learning a lot about the possibilities that the studio can offer. And uh, then it, it kind of bounces out. They become creative collaborators. And then around the time of Revolver, they're, they're trying out things that are, are, are further ahead of him. You know, he, when, he's making, when they make Rain, he's the one who suggests that they reverse the tape and everything. But then they start making Revolver and start making Sergeant Pepper and he starts to feel as though he's trying to keep up with them and their, their, their imaginings. Would that be right? It's a fair assessment, but one of the great joys of writing these two books and, and why I undertook the project in the first place was to try to see it from his point of view. And it's very different. Uh, for one thing, we all think of the Beatles as this sort of settled question, right? Perhaps the greatest band of all time, one of the 20th century's most important musical fusions. Well, if you're sitting in George's chair in early 1966, nothing is settled. They're trying to keep their hands on a very large audience. They're worried that they're going to be that awful thing that older generations talk about, the flash in the pan. Mm. George hated that phrase. You know, There's a great fear that they would be selling shoes in 1967. So... Things did not seem so settled, and and that was fascinating. Uh, But but the other issue is, you're absolutely right. The Beatles are changing, and they're becoming uh, artistically more interesting and more daring. But what he was doing throughout that entire period was being a great 
politician. He was a master politician. He knew when to go forward and, and maybe push the envelope. You described the moment with rain perfectly. But at other times, he would go into full retreat and let them have their way, especially in some of those post-pepper sessions where they were really out of their minds and, and working on some of the uh, what they thought were the yellow submarine throwaway tracks. And he could tell that they were, they were getting really self-indulgent. In fact, one of the sessions for, I believe it was It's All Too Much, was one of his lowest moments in the studio because nothing was working. Uh, for a lot of good reasons, in fact. LSD probably being one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but in any event, um, you know, he was very smart about when to push forward and when to pull back. And the chocolate and the newspapers, uh, and this was related to me by some of the other studio personnel, was just one way of doing that and not offending anybody. Yeah. You know, they didn't mind getting the chocolate in the booth, the other <laughs> the tape operators, etc. And that way he could wait. And sometimes he would wait 12 hours before they were ready to work on a song. But it was a political maneuver. He knew he was very shrewd about when to pull back. And he's very smart about that in 1969. So is he still turning up for Sergeant Pepper sessions in a shirt and tie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, remember, by then, and this is why he had to be a great politician. By that point, he's in business for himself. He quits EMI officially in, what, September 1965. He's, a, he's in business for himself. And while he has the world's biggest act by miles, he has the world's smallest percentage. It, I think, what is it, 1963 or four? I can't remember, where he has... The number one record in Britain for something like 42 out of 52 weeks. It's 37 out of 52. And they don't give him a bonus. He doesn't get a Christmas bonus. He does not get a Christmas bonus. That's Beatles, Jerry and the Pacemakers, who don't forget, first three records were all number one. Silla Black. Which is incredible domination. Millions of pounds in EMI's coffers that they had no belief they would have seen that no, year. No, no, no. None at all. And it's because of his records. And he only knows about the bonus um, because Judy gets one. <laughs> so he's like, well, what's this? You got a bonus? I'm, you know, I'm the producer of this band and the head of Parlophone. So he called up someone in accounting and they said, yeah, you, you don't get a bonus. You're management. <laughs> I, I interviewed him a couple of times. I, I don't think he'd fully got over it, actually. He was still a bit <laughs> resentful. Well, and you, know, you can't blame him. Of course you can't. What do they say? It's the slights, the small things yeah. that we don't forgive. Yeah. yeah. And it is an awful slight. I mean, today, imagine it's some football coach, right? You'd get like a 10 million pound bonus just to stick around. Yeah. You know, they'd be so worried you're leaving and you're going to leave. And here they treat him really less than they are the staff. And he's just made a paradigm shift for the company. Talking of slights, uh, one of the things you, you uh, focus on quite a bit is the difficulty the Beatles had in getting the American record company, Capital, which was the, the American arm of EMI, to, to even put their records out, which is, the more you think about it, is just staggering, isn't it? It's sort of absurdity on a similar kind of level, right? It's, uh, it, it just boggles the mind. And this is without benefit of retrospect. You know, these records are killing it over in, in the UK. It was all because of a fellow named Dave Dexter Jr. Um, and issue one, he's an old jazz guy, okay? So in 1963, he is the world music vice president or executive for Capital. Remember, Capital Records is a subsidiary of EMI. EMI bought them because they wanted all their manufacturing capabilities. Um, and in it, they, you know, 
They got the famous building at Hollywood and Vine and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, working with Capital, um, EMI would send over records that they thought would sell well in the American market, and it was Dave Dexter's job, his sole job, was to assess those records. And over and over again, he would say, no, it won't work here. It won't work in the American town. And then other smaller companies would license. So which ones did he say wouldn't work there? Did he say... Uh, she loves you. He said she loves you won't work in America. Please please me. Um, you know, records from that vintage. From me to you. Um, and and, and EMI Martin, pushed back in the UK, didn't they? Well, it was really, it was George Martin. Um, he has these letters you can find in his correspondence. He's writing like, I really think you should consider, please, please. Yeah. Um, it was a number one record here. <laughs> um, people think it's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, George would send these letters, and, and they wouldn't do anything. And when, and when Capital would not accept the licensing, then... They were free to license to other companies. And so these small American companies with no promotion budgets would pick them up. It's an extraordinary thing. So, so while he's got the Beatles uh, you know, uh, going mad in the mid-60s, he's also producing Cilla Black and loads of other people as well, isn't he? Is it, has he got difficulty balancing the competing demands of his... <laughs> he certainly does. And, uh, you know, some artists will rise to the top. He always had a special place for Scylla. Of course, he was riding the hot hand. You know, for a moment there, she was having um, yeah, yeah. numerous bestsellers in a row. Um, but some of his existing artists, Shirley Bassey, for one, was furious with him. She felt like she was no longer getting his attention. Um, and he, was, he wasn't giving her attention. So he had difficulty sort of keeping all of those balls in the air. And the Beatles were his most important client, and all of this is magnified then when we get to, again, September 1965, when he starts Air, Associated Independent Recordings, and when he goes into business for himself, all of this matters to him a lot more. He needs to build a functioning artist roster. As I mentioned before, he got this terrible percentage from EMI. They've, they considered the Beatles their group, and it was their finder's fee, and George signed on the dotted line a contract that lived well into the solo years. It didn't run out until the Beatles contract ran out. So, for example, when he would do Live and Let Die in 1973, he got the same lousy percentage uh, that he got on the Beatles records. So he had to be working hard for a living to keep the company running. I love the story about Live and Let Die when they, um, they play the McCartney's recording to Cubby Broccoli of the Bond films. <laughs> yeah. Who says, great, shall we get Shirley Bassey to do it? Right. <laughs> doesn't that, you can't go to Paul McCartney and say, we're going to get somebody else to do your song. You know? No, it just doesn't work. Particularly in that, in that, in that case. But he, was, he was quite forthright, wasn't he, George, about certain things that he felt the Beatles were doing which were not a good idea. The he was very against the butcher sleeve, wasn't he? When they... Oh, he said, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, what are you doing? You know, that's, that's going to go badly. <laughs> and he was completely right. He was completely right. And yeah. the odd moments when he's not in the studio, when they make all together now, which is one of the few moments when you think the Beatles kind of lost it slightly, <laughs> <laughs> pretty loose. But he, he was kind of... <laughs> it probably wouldn't have happened if his presence hadn't been there. You know, they, they just suddenly felt giggly and schoolboyish and kind of, you know, went off and experimented, you know. And he really is the big force behind Yellow Submarine. Brian, of course, negotiated that with United Artists. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles thought it was hokey. Uh, they thought the script was silly, um, and they really wanted nothing to do with it. They would make fun of the songs that they would make, the four or five uh, songs that they, they created, especially for the album. George, of course, had to shoulder that soundtrack into being. And, if, you know, at the end of the day, they loved it. 
Well, they liked, liked anything that did well, didn't they? In the they end. did, and it did do very, very well. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. That, 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 that tends to happen. So, but at the same time, he's, he's, he's being marketed as a kind of solo artist, isn't he? As a conductor and arranger of easy listening pop with a heavy Beatle connection. He was. In 1964, at the sort of the height of the American phase of Beatlemania, United Artists negotiated a contract with him to be, a, as you said, a solo artist. You might recall that um, his, his orchestration for This Boy became a kind of minor hit, subtitled Ringo's Theme. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you remember that sad sack scene of Ringo walking along the towpath, yeah, yeah. you know, feeling like, I guess, This Boy. Uh, in any event, he did have a, a several years running contract with him where he would do orchestrations um, more in the line of Montavani than the Beatles. Do you think he wanted to be a star? Absolutely. He was very keen to promote himself, wasn't he? I mean, you know, I, I, uh, we were looking at a picture there of, of him on, on, on the cover, uh, with, with surrounded by gorgeous 60s women, you know. Right. He, he, he really promoted his relationship with the Beatles, didn't he? He did, and uh, he did want to be a star. Um, he was. <clears throat> Even though he, he might not have been well-bred in name, he was well-bred in manner, so he wouldn't necessarily uh, sort of force the issue in a way that maybe someone would do now with a kind of tantrum. Uh, he admired the star tantrum. If you fast-forward back to the, the moment when he sees Sinatra recording during the Come Fly With Me sessions, he had visited uh, Capitol Studios, and Sinatra had a tantrum. Because of the the record cover uh, had a, some product placement, uh, and Sinatra was furious. Oh, about an airline, was yeah. And yeah, George right. loved it. He loved watching that tantrum because I think he felt like uh, you know he needed that recognition too, and it was being denied to him. There's a great moment that Ken Scott engineer and later producer shared with me he was uh had come early to the studio he's smoking a cigarette he's out front on those steps at abbey road and uh, brian was still alive then and uh was coming up in the car park and the girls were mobbing brian's car and that's when george showed he was kind of late and he steps up with his briefcase and he walks up the steps looks at ken scott smoking looks back at brian epstein surrounded by these girls you know and being adored and he he looks at Ken and he said, that should be me. <laughs> and I, I, I asked Ken about that. He said it was the only time he ever sort of saw anything beyond the, the version of George that he wanted him to see. Yeah, yeah. Were there many it? tantrums and fallings out between him and the Beatles? Now, and again, he was in amazing control. There was a moment in July of 1968 where he did get in a bit of shouting match with, uh, I believe it was Paul, over how he was singing one of the songs on the White Album. And that's what Jeff Emmerich would claim was one of the breaking points for him. But for the most part, he was in control, but he needed to be. This is his biggest client, right? And he's trying to make this company work. And, and a lot of folks are depending on him, including his other partners at AIR. Judy is part of AIR. So he's got to make this work. He didn't let them see uh, sort of his other side very much. It's extraordinary to reflect when you read the, these books, just the speed at which all this happened. You know, the, the, these guys land, you know, wander in there in what, 1962 or 61 or whatever from Liverpool. Nobody's ever come from Liverpool before. And within five years, the whole of the world entertainment business is completely at the beck and call, isn't it? You, I think you, you talk about one incident where they're, where they're, trying to, they're mixing a record and they're using every studio in the building, aren't they? And they they've are. got pretty much every employee of Abbey Road is working 
Absolutely. And one of my favorite stories is when they're trying to get ru- rubber sole done for the holiday sales. <laughs> they're killing themselves. The Beatles have been on tour, of course. They're about to go on tour again, and they've got to get this record done. Uh, it's a comedy of errors. At one point, um, George accidentally erases one of the masters. They fix it. They get the lacquers done. They send them out to the, the production plant, and somebody drops them. It's, uh, it's just the incredible speed at which everything was happening. That... And these guys worked like dogs. And the speed at which they, they work, work the every day. They don't take yeah, days no, 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 off. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. The, I just can't get over the fact that the, the, the number of times that they will turn up with a song like She Loves You, George and Ringo, I don't think had ever heard it. And uh, they played it to them, and within four hours or so, it's pretty much finished. You know, There were two occasions in the book where they arrive at the studio without a song, write a song, record it, and finish it on the same day. She's a Woman, I think, is one of them. <laughs> and I think, hey, Bulldog, you know, they, they just arrived, wrote it in the studio, recorded and finished the whole thing. And sometimes they would, they would have those kind of banner days and really never look back at the songs again. There's, I'm, I'm teaching my Beatles course this year at Monmouth, and it's fascinating because you get to feel this in real time, right? Um, the day that they record yesterday, of course, this is before they do the overdub session with the, the string quartet, they also record in full, uh, I'm, I'm down, down. I'm done. and I've just seen a face. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And you can't think of two more different vocals than, than I'm down. Sure, and they're all Paul. <laughs> and, and they're all Paul, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but they would just move at light speed. Isn't it the case with Hard Day's Night, they were making the film, and the film still had no title, and then somebody mentioned... Ringo's old joke about, oh, it's been a hard day's night. Dick Lester said, that's a good name for the film. <laughs> Therefore, we need a song. <laughs> and they went off. And that's right. Much- and John uh, was very funny, of course. And he went off and, and did exactly that. He and Paul work on it. He comes back. I think it was on a greeting card or, you know, or something like that. He hands it to Dick Lester and says, don't ever do that again. Which is absolutely extraordinary. And, and there's what? The, the next night, they're in the studio yeah, making there's a lovely bit with, with their seventh album where they finished it and they don't have a title for it and they've got that I've I just scribbled them down because was, some of them I just didn't know this is the, the album that went on to be Revolver um, Beatles on Safari is one of the names Bubble and Squeak <laughs> Fat Man and Bobby Pendulum Magic Circle and Four Sides of the Eternal Triangle <laughs> amazing and, they, and they, they'd finished the whole record they'd finished the artwork was ready they still didn't have a title for it and eventually hit on Revolver would you have liked it so much if it was called Bubble and Squeak I don't, well, I don't know I don't know you probably would have got used to you it might have got so, used to it yeah. Yeah, we'd, we'd all be talking about Bubble and Squeak now oh that's the one the, the classic color. the classic yeah, Bubble my favorite. Favorite. that's the one yeah. with favorite favorite period. Yeah. is it Everest or Bubble and Squeak yeah, yeah. yeah. side one would have been Bubble <laughs> <laughs> so Squeak ends with Tomorrow Never Knows <laughs> they they come to an end, 1969, Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah, spoiler alert. But George Martin has got, you know, his, his studio business, you know, he's, he's got this huge name out of it. He's probably the best-known producer in the world. He gets loads of work, um, some of it quite successful, commercially successful. Nothing particularly striking. Is that fair? I think it's mostly fair. Um, when, when I describe George in his post-Beatles world, he's obviously very successful. Um, but uh, his career, in some ways, is like theirs. You know, they're the sum of their parts. And he was one of those parts. And Harrison was one of those parts, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all 
I would argue, diminished in some way. Uh, he's probably diminished more because he was great with them. There's a wonderful moment with uh, Brian Epstein around 1964, and they're at the height of their media uh, phenomenology, and Brian says, you know, well, George is the hit maker. Anything he does is a hit. And Martin says, no, no, I'm a hit with these guys. Yes. This is, this is the scenario. He understood that very implicitly, um, and, and he realizes, I think, that he's doomed in, in a lot of ways. He works with America, and they make several uh, very fine albums and a, lot, a number of, of great hit songs. Jeff Beck, uh, you know, what they did with Diamond Dust was uh, a great high mark for him, but he never really has that kind of sustained experience. I guess he works with McCartney for a while. We could argue that that's one of those periods. For me, Tug of War may be Paul's best solo album, mm-hmm. I, would, I would argue, um, you know, so but he never has that sustained sustained experience. Now, what he does do very successfully um, is create world class studios. Right. First at Oxford Street, uh, Montserrat, um, Lyndhurst, um, and uh, makes a, a huge impact on the industry in that way. And especially with Montserrat, if you go back and look at the records that were recorded there in the 1980s. Billions of pounds of records came right out of there uh, with the world's biggest act. So he was making marks in other ways, um, but no, it's never quite the same. I mean, there is a, a certain level of diminishment. It intrigues me. In the 70s, I think you say, that, I think 76 or 77, Capital and the States want to put out rock and roll music, which is a compilation of... And they hadn't done a Beatles compilation for a while or something like that. Yeah. And uh, and they can't get in touch with any of them, or they they just don't respond. Is that is that fair to say? Well, those were such weird projects, love songs and rock and roll music. Yeah. You know, they they'd really done their work well with the Red and the Blue albums, but uh, those and the Hollywood Bowl also came out during that period. Um, and George would sort of be dragged back into those projects. As the diplomat to, to try and... Well, to connect with them. I think right. in the case of the Hollywood Bowl, he literally was in New York, and because of that vicinity and proximity, he dropped a copy off at the Dakota, and the next day John said, yeah, it's fine, you know, <laughs> do whatever you're going to do. Um, it, was, it was a strange period, and they were almost... Um, they were continuing their strange treatment of him in a way. They were using him as this kind of quasi-consultant, right. but not always paying him. Right. And John was very unkind about him, actually, in interviews at one point, wasn't he? He was quite, yeah, he was quite awful to George. And in the early 70s in particular, he would, you know, he would say things like, well, what's George Martin doing now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Stackridge, right? Um, and he would, he would drop some pot shots at him. Uh, they had a real making up, though, in... Uh, their last meeting was in December 1979, and John went to the Dakota. And as he puts it, Yoko made herself scarce. And, <laughs> and they hung out in the, the kitchen there uh, above the courtyard in, in that famous old building. And uh, they talked old times and, and really connected. It was, of course, it was not a wound-free evening. Uh, John apologized for being out of his mind when he had said all those earlier things. But then he went into uh, the issue of the fact that he would re-record everything they'd ever done. Yes, he said that. <laughs> yeah. If I had my way, again, my way, I there was would re-record nothing he was everything. With yeah. So Which George, how hurtful is that? I think it was probably worse than the hurt that George had come to dinner with over what John had said in the seventies. Now he's leaving and. And Lennon is calling his entire life's work into question. Uh, but he, he, but he must able... have known he, he couldn't have meant it. I mean, he just couldn't. Well, he, no, I think George came down to the conclusion that he did mean it. But rather, um, I, 
I think Martin found a way to think about it, and it went like this. John's uh, belief in, in reality, what he wants reality to be, it will never measure up to. Yeah. And our songs, as great as they are, would always be, uh, his imagination would always you know, supersede whatever we did. And he, he sort of created a, a, a way of thinking about it that made him feel better. And, of course, he was the one who wanted Let It Be to be raw and kind of untouched and then handed the tapes to Phil Spector and said, you know, put strings all over this, you know. That is an incredible episode, isn't it, when you think about that? Um, yeah, he, John and Paul tell Glenn Johns, you know, raw, make it, you know, really primitive. No production, no, John would say, no jiggery-pokery. And so what does Glenn Johns do? Just that. In fact, I think I've got a feeling it's the worst take, and it just stops at the end. And when he plays it for Lennon and McCartney, they're like, yeah, we don't like that. And so they, he keeps going back to the drawing board for them. And finally, George Martin gets involved. And, of course, they're never happy with the primitive version. Yeah, yeah. and they, they, they end up with the strings. What did you think of the love project that he did later on? I remember going to Abbey Road and, and uh, being played that. Uh, where he took you know, sections of the old recordings and, and rebuilt them into different, uh, different, different kind of amalgamations of the song. What did, you, what did you think of it? Well, you know, this is one of those great dividing lines, right? I can almost see, you know, thought bubbles above our audience right now, um, whether they like it or not. And, and the late Jeff Emmerich, uh, for example, really did not like it. He thought that these texts are sacred. Um, I don't fall in that category. Uh, I believe, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm from the age of the mashup and I'm okay with that. I feel like the Beatles are so great that they're elastic that you can do anything with them, and they only enhance whatever text you're trying to create. And this project that Giles made to me is, is beautiful. Um, it's rendered even more beautiful if you see the show. Uh, but these, these re-envisioning, uh, these, these new visions of Beatles songs to me really come to life. Lots of beautiful ways. I mean, some of the textures that are married together are incredible. Um, Helter Skelter and Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. It's crazy. And it, mm. those, both of those songs were already crazy. <laughs> and they come together in this kind of explosion of terror. Uh, it's really something. And other times you'll have great beauty because... Explosion example, of terror is a very attractive phrase. So, I have to go back well, and I, I, I did this. that for tonight. That was, <laughs> you so bring he, out your best stuff for you he, guys. He, he, had the, he did have the satisfaction of, of seeing... He, he kind of felt underappreciated in any way by the end of his life, can he, George Martin? Oh, I don't think so. He was knighted, and uh, it, he was apprehensive, by the way, about the Love Project, but Giles went to, he, George was sick at the time, and he would bring him mixes in the hospital, and George came around. He said, yeah, you can do this. This makes sense. You know, he was willing to be won over by it, uh, and Giles showed him the evidence. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There, there's no way he could have felt underappreciated. Because he had the anthology project, and you know, you know the the kind of attention of whole new generations of, uh, of fans. Right, and if we're going to call him the fifth Beatle for any reason, it's certainly, he, he's a great caretaker for them. He really protects their legacy, just as he did with their sound when they were all working together. As far as, as and as long as he could take it, he did just that. So to finish with a counterfactual, if they had not met George Martin, if they'd been put in the studio with Ron Richards or Norrie Paramore. <laughs> what happens to the Beatles story? Are they back in Liverpool? They're back in Liverpool. Uh, 
they would have ended up getting other jobs later. I think they would have been a, not one-hit wonders, maybe a few-hit wonders, perhaps. Uh, but they would be one of these stories that exists for a couple of years. Uh, if that, uh, you know, the, the Beatles story occurs because they're all coming at that business sideways. You've got the Beatles themselves. They're from Liverpool. Um, they're not going about it the normal way, right? They're, they're not, you know, working some normal apprenticeship that one would find themselves getting a recording contract, you know, at the end of the rainbow. They hook up with a manager who's not really a manager. Yes. He runs a record store. He's failed at everything he's ever done. He failed at the, uh, at the service. He failed at RADA. Yeah. Everything he's tried, he's blown. This is going to be it. And then they hook up with a, a record producer who's not really a record producer, and the six of them just go at the industry coming sideways, and they disrupt it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people reached for his name as the kind of classic producer. But he wasn't the classic producer at all, was he? No, he no. Was he was a completely different... He <laughs> was a unique case, wasn't he? Yeah, he worked on head arrangement and really what he... He went with his gut, you know, what he liked, the sounds that he liked. And really, at a certain point, what might give him pleasure? He would really like to put strings on yesterday. So, Will, let's do it. Well, you've, uh, you've certainly done him proud in both volumes of this. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary read, you know, which does remind you of just what a, what, uh, what a unique um, part he played in, in a unique story. Uh, and they are, it's recorded in these two books, Maximum Volume and Sound Pictures, The Life of George Martin. Please thank Kenneth Womack. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.